God bless you, everybody. We're continuing our study in Judges. It's a story of rebellion and restoration. People rebel and God restores. It concerns ancient Israel and God's response to them, but by application, of course, it applies to us even today. There's something in us that's bent on sin. It's in our nature. We're inclined to do it again and again, and we're grateful to God that his grace is even greater than all our sin. If you ever doubt it, think of Israel, a spiritually privileged group of people who repeatedly squandered the privilege, and God responded again and again and again to their rebellion with wonderful restoration. In fact, he did so in the book of Judges through people he raised up to deliver Israel. They were called judges. They weren't judges in the sense in which we think of it. They were kind of like mini saviors, if you will, We've looked at a whole series of them, and we've been camping out on one in particular, Samson, of whom more is said in Judges than any of the others. He's an enigma, Samson. There's such good stuff about him and such bad stuff about him. It's kind of a mixed review when you think about Samson. Anyway, from the womb, God set him apart, wanted him to be dedicated to the Lord by taking a Nazarite vow, meaning He would stay away from contact with dead people. He would not cut his hair. He wouldn't drink any uh, alcoholic beverages. From the womb, he was set apart to be dedicated unto the Lord. His mother knew about this. So too did his father. They raised him in this way. They were godly people. I'm sure they prayed for him each day. When he got to a point, he was an adult and no longer would listen to his parents, sadly. He saw a woman. She was a Philistine lady. This isn't a racist statement that Israelites uh, were were, were greater than the Philistines, but uh, spiritually speaking, they were unequally yoked. And so for Samson to have an attraction for a Philistine lady struck fear into the lives of his parents. Nonetheless, he said to them, get her for me. She looks good. Here's, Here's Samson a strong, mighty man uh, who performed mighty exploits but seemed to be very weak in the area of restraining his own passions, particularly for women. And so he liked this Philistine lady. He didn't even know her. As far as we know, they didn't even have any interchange, no conversation. His parents tried to reason with him, but what are you going to do when you have a strong-willed, rebellious child? So they gave in. They went to the wedding there to watch their son become unequally yoked to this Philistine gal. It lasted about seven days, during which there were all forms of entertainment, not the least of which was unbridled drinking. And to make the time go, uh, Samson asked a, a riddle of those in attendance. This sounds unusual to us, but it wasn't for them. They would play word games to pass the time, and nobody could solve the riddle. And so Samson's consort, this Philistine gal, started crying, you know, and Samson, she wanted the answer to the riddle because her Philistine uh, brethren put people on her to get the answer from her husband-to-be. Samson finally caved in, and he told her the answer. She told her Philistine kinsmen, and uh, uh, Samson had to admit defeat, the prize of which, for the ones who solved the riddle, were 30 suits of clothing. 
linen and other expensive garments. And Samson, in order to satisfy his obligation, look what he did on impulse and anger, went to another place and he killed 30 Philistine men to take their clothing in order to use it as payment of his debt. And he gave it to those who solved the riddle. Here's a guy, as strong as he was, as I mentioned, was very weak with regard to control of his instincts and passions. So he got angry and he murdered 30 Philistines for the wrong reason. And then uh, things got worse. He left his wife even before their relationship was consummated. It was to be consummated on the night of the seventh day of this feast. And Samson got carried away and he left. And so in response, his father-in-law, the father of this Philistine gal, decided to give her to the best man at the wedding. Good night. Well, Samson went crazy and stormed off, left his wife, and went back home to mommy and daddy. That's the situation, and now we pick up the action in this sordid tale in Judges chapter 15. Here's what it says, Judges chapter 15 Verse 1, it says, after a while, and see, we don't know how long, uh, there was a period of time between when he, in anger, left his wife, again, before consummating the relationship, and he left to go back home. So after a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, please keep this in mind, it will become a little more significant later, just to tell you what time of year, generally around May or June in Israel, it was characterized by um, almost complete absence of precipitation. It was a very dry and hot time. Please keep that in mind. So in the time of the wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife. Well, that's a nice thing, don't you think? After a period of time, he decided to go visit his wife. And so he brought her a young goat. And this guy really knew how to charm the ladies, apparently. Uh, but that was, in that day, the equivalent of a bouquet of flowers, apparently. And so he brought a young goat, and he said, I'll go into my wife in her room, but her father didn't let him enter. You can understand why. Here, by the way, is a kind of a depiction, maybe. Of, look at that young. How could you not soften your heart by looking to, yeah. Took me hours to find that picture. Spent more time looking for that than actually on studying the text. So the gal's dad didn't let Samson have her, though they were wedded. I suppose the dad was thinking, uh, forget it. You left her. Why should you have access to her? And so this is what happens in verse 2. Her father said, I, I thought you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. And look what he says. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. And so the father-in-law had the son, had Samson pegged really well. He knew that Samson led with his eyes, not with his head. And if the basis of his attraction to... His wife was on appearance only. Uh, the father-in-law thought, well, then if I introduce the younger one who's even more appealing physically, maybe Samson's attachment to the older daughter will wane and he'll transfer his affections from her to the younger daughter. Well, I don't think it worked quite that way. And so Samson said to them, this time I shall be blameless. 
What does he mean this time? It's kind of a veiled confession. Uh, It's as if he's saying, up until this point, I took action against the Philistines. Okay, I was wrong in killing 30 of them for their clothes. But this time, the action I'm about to take against them will render me blameless. He is saying, I have justification this time in doing what I'm about to do in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Now look, God raised him up to deal with the Philistines who were oppressing the Israelites. But the motive behind Samson's activity against them was very base. It was pure personal revenge, and that is never an acceptable motive before God. And so this is what happens in verse 4. Samson went and caught 300 foxes. Have you ever tried doing that? It's amazing. We have no indication that he got help in so doing, and he probably didn't, because remember one time I told you Samson was a loner? He hung out with nobody. He didn't have a good relationship with his parents because he rebelled against them. He surely didn't have a good relationship with his Philistine wife nor her father. The other judges of Israel commanded the respect of folks, had social and relational skills. They could motivate an army to go with them to war. Here we see Solomon doing everything independent of everyone else. It's a very flawed characteristic of certain leaders to be alone, not to have good relationships. And so Samson probably pulled this off somehow alone, caught 300 foxes, that's what it says. And he took torches, he turned the foxes tail to tail, if you can imagine this, how, I don't know, and he put one torch in the middle between two tails. It's just an extraordinary kind of a thing. Now, folks, you see where it says foxes? The Hebrew word there could also be translated jackals. So the animals were probably not foxes, it was probably these critters These are jackals, well, they're not horsing around, they're jackaling around, apparently. And the reason why I make this case is foxes are generally independent creatures, but jackals hang out in packs, and therefore it might have facilitated a Samson strategy to capture 300 and tie them tail to tail. And so this is what happens in verse 5. When he had set fire to the torches... He released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain, along with the vineyards and groves. How did this happen? Think about it. He ties up these jackals together. There's a flaming torch tied to their tails. When he releases them, they're not going in a straight line. They're going helter-skelter, hither and yon. Remember, it's wheat harvest. It's really dry. The wheat has been gathered together, yet not threshed. It's in standing piles. The foxes are setting those on fire. Also, all of the grain, though cut down, there was enough of it to set on fire. And because they're running in random directions, the text says they set on fire not just the grain, but the vineyards and the groves, grapes and olives, very, very important staples in that area. All of it is set ablaze. In other words, Solomon dealt a devastating blow to the Philistine economy. 
Now his motive is to finish it. Look what happened to me, said he. He's motivated by personal revenge. And when one is motivated by personal revenge, that one is deceived into thinking, this will bring finality to the situation. Let me get them, it'll end it. But it never works that way. Because what he inflicted upon them, not only did it not end things, it so inflamed them, no pun intended, that they worked out a plan to get back at him. Again, the Lord raised up Solomon from the womb again to rid Israel of Philistine oppression, but his motive in opposing them is entirely wrong. It's purely based on personal revenge. Do you know what God says about it? This is what he said in the law of Moses way back in Deuteronomy. It's simple. He said, vengeance is mine. That's what he said. It's not our prerogative. But remember, in that day, it seemed the pattern of people, which is given to us in the last verse of the book, characterized Samson as well. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Though vengeance is the prerogative of God, Samson said, no, it seems right to me to do this. The law clearly instructed the Israelites to get out of the way and let God do what he chooses to do. Do you know there are many differences between Christianity and other faith perspectives? One of the clearest distinctives, the thing that distinguishes us from the them, is the way we are told to treat our enemies. Here is what the New Testament says is to be our response to those who have done wrong to us. It's found in Romans 12, 17. I'll bet you're familiar with it. Never... Pay back evil for evil to anyone. Look, never and to anyone. It's an option ruled out by Romans 12, 17. Never is an absolute word. There are no exceptions. Never pay back evil to evil to anyone. Furthermore, it goes on to say in verse 18, if possible, now that's the key, if possible, here's what we're supposed to do. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. God is very realistic. He knows peace is a bilateral thing, not unilateral. You really can't be at peace with another party unless that other party wishes to be at peace with you. Therefore, God says, if possible, forget about revenge, if possible, you are to be bent on reconciliation, even with the one who's done you wrong. If This is the distinctive of Christianity. See what I'm getting at? We're not allowed to strike out at someone who has hurt us. No, this has to be the strategy. If possible, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Do the right thing, in other words, even if doing the right thing does not beget the right response. But doesn't the Bible say evil people should be punished? Are they to get off scot-free? Absolutely not. The Bible simply says we are not the ones to do the punishing. That's up to God and the agency of government that he has appointed. And so Romans 12 verse 19 goes on to say, never, there's that word again, never take your own revenge. Now this is not given to cramp our style. God loves us, see? He's writing to those termed the beloved. Never take your own revenge, 
beloved? Well, then you would cry out, oh God, what's the option? Here it is. Leave room for the wrath of God. You know what that implies? Um, one or the other response takes place. One squeezes out the other. Look, if you or I decide we can be a better justice maker in the face of an offense, we can be a better justice maker than God, then God will say, okay, have at it. The other option is to let God be a better justice maker. He surely is. Leave room for the wrath of God. Our own assertion of our own rights squeezes out God's intervention. He looks at us, and if we insist on taking matters into our own hand, he'll say, have at it if you think you can do this better than me. But once again, uh, God repeats what I read to you earlier in Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so there are these two options. And so when we refuse to take our own revenge, as instructed in Scripture, we reflect something, not only of the mercy of God towards the offender, but also our dependence on the unfolding of the justice of God. But when we try to get even, uh, something happens. We get consumed with it all, and in the process of trying to get even, we actually empower the one who has hurt us already. It's very interesting. Someone said, uh, revenge is like drinking poison and expecting the other one to die. That same person said, forgiveness is kind of like a solo flight to freedom. You free yourself from bondage to the one who has hurt you. Let me give a foolish illustration. I, I think I've shared this before. Uh, when I was in the military a long time ago, uh, on one assignment, there was a small country church near the military base where I was stationed. I went there with a number of other members of the military, this small little church. And on one occasion, there was a guy attending there. I knew him. He said, Stuart, I wonder if, if you could help me. Could you, could you lend me $20? I'm, I'm needy. I'm a little short. Well, I said, Sure. Absolutely. So I gave him the $20. He said, I'll give it back to you next week. I said, okay, that's fine. That's what he said. I will give it back to you next week. Gave me his word. Next week we show up in church. I'm there. He's there. He doesn't give me the $20. He doesn't even acknowledge my presence. We used to sit near each other in Bible study. He's sitting far away from me. He's really avoiding me. It bothered me a little bit. Okay. Maybe he forgot. Well, the next week we get together again. Same treatment, no conversation, doesn't broach the subject, nothing. I mean, if he said to me, Stuart, remember I told you, I gave you my word, I'll give you the $20 back, it was last week, I'm sorry, I ran into hard times. I don't, you know what I would have said? Forget it. Now, I know you don't believe I would say that because of my last name, but I'm telling you, I would have, take it by faith, Nothing. Another week goes by. Now, here's what's happening to me in the process. I'm consumed with it all. I'm telling you, it's not the $20. It's that this so-called friend gave me his word and is not honoring his word. What kind of friend is this? I can't trust this guy. And I'm harboring all these thoughts right in the middle of worship. 
Oh, I'm mouthing the words to the song, but I'm not even conscious of them. I'm more conscious of that guy right over there singing those songs of praise. How dare you lift up your voice to God when you won't even open your mouth and tell me what happened with your promise. I am angry. The pastor says, let's bow in prayer. Well, I bowed, but I'm not praying. I am just mad. Then I realized after a while of going through this, what a knucklehead I am. For $20, I am letting this guy own me. He bought me for $20. He succeeded in distracting me from all else, including Almighty God, who I owe a debt to I could never pay. And then it suddenly dawned on me, I know what I'm going to do. I will let him off my hook, meaning in my mind, I'll erase the debt. Therefore, the next time I see him, I won't see him as someone obligated to me in any way. He owes me no debt. I will accept the consequences of his misdeed. What are the consequences? Well, he violated trust and friendship. I surely won't entrust anything to him again. I'll deal with the consequence, but I've let him off my hook, and I found tremendous relief. And then I realized, look, I have the power to get him off my hook, but I can't get him off God's hook. That's between him and God, and it suddenly dawned on me, the freedom of forgiveness. My father, don't you see, is a better justice maker than I could ever be. That's why God says what he does. Samson didn't get it. A judge of Israel set apart to be fully devoted to the Lord from his womb, raised by godly parents. Still, Samson thought this final act of revenge, that'll end things, it'll satisfy me, it'll lay all this to rest. And boy, was he wrong. We can see it here in verse 6. Then the Philistines said, who did this? And they said, Samson, the son of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. And so the Philistines came up, look what they did, and they burned her and her father, look, with fire. The Philistines literally fought fire with fire. Samson used fire to affect tremendous economic devastation, wheat crops and olive groves and vineyards, they struck back fierce. You see what revenge does? It just breathes life into the evil intentions of those who have been the recipients of your vengeance. And so they burn alive Samson's wife and father-in-law. That's what happens. And so in verse 7, this sort of tale goes on. Samson said to them, since you act like this, I will sure, look, it doesn't end. I'll take revenge on you, but after that, look what he says, I will quit. You see, this is the deception of revenge. It doesn't end. It doesn't have a shelf life. Every vengeful motive breathes more life into it as it is in this case. And so here's what he did. He struck them ruthlessly. See this word? It means, in Hebrew, hip and thigh. You might have that maybe as a comment in your Bible. Hip and thigh. You know what it means? He struck them totally, completely, mercilessly. He struck them viciously. That's what he did. He struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter. And then he went down, look at this, and lived in the cleft of the rock. 
of a place called Etam, cleft of a rock. And I thought about this. What's up with that? Why did he isolate himself in this place? Was he afraid? No, no. I don't think that's something Samson really experienced much. He saw how God had empowered him. He could take care of 30 Philistines. He could handle 300 jackals and all the rest. Oh, no, no. He had confidence, at most too much confidence in his physical prowess. I don't think he went there because he was fearful. Look, I'm speculating here. Uh, I think he went there because, remember, he was a loner. And now he's feeling more alone than ever. He's got nobody. He's got nothing. He doesn't know how to get close. He fears intimacy. He's not close with his beloved parents. He surely couldn't get close to his wife. He hangs out with no one. Even at his wedding, we mentioned last week, guests had to be provided because he brought none of his own. A loner seeks aloneness. So he went to live in the cleft of a rock. Maybe it looked something like this. I don't know. Something like that's where he went. I think he's depressed. Can I tell you something? I don't recommend depression, um, but don't consider it an enemy if you are afflicted by it. Now, some depression is due to sinful choices. Therefore, you should repent of it. I got it. But not all depression is due to sinful choices. Some depression is due to illness. The mind can get ill. It's an organ, just like every other organ in the body. Chemicals can get out of balance there and so on. So at this time, I think God allowed Samson to be depressed because depression does something to you. It causes you to take stock. You become much more reflective when this happens. The discomfort of depression, the pain of it all, sometimes drives you in a better direction. Sometimes it moves you to cling to God. You cry out to him. You say, I'm afflicted with this depression. I can't get it out of my mind. And you start filling your mind with different thoughts. Sometimes, in times of depression, the scriptures become more alive and meaningful than ever before. Your prayer life becomes not mechanical or superficial. You're really not talking to God. You're crying out to him. And boy, does he hear the prayers of someone who cries out to him. I wonder if God allowed this depression at this time in order to give Samson a chance to have a softened heart. Samson, get out of yourself. Look what your unbridled passions is getting you. Temporary gratification. But look at you. You're living under a rock for crying out loud. You have no meaningful relations nor even a reason to live. I just wonder if God allowed this as an incentive perhaps for Samson to draw near to God. Well, I don't know. I think we might see some evidence of it in just a second. But here's what happens. The Philistines gather together. They encamp in Judah against the Israelites. The men of Judah come to them and say, what's up? Why have you come against us? They say, well, we've come up to bind Samson so as to do to him what he did to us. And then we read this in verse 11. It's fascinating to me. Three 
3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock to see Samson. 3,000 men of Judah. It's very interesting. They're coming to oppose one of their own with 3,000 men when those 3,000 could have targeted the Philistines who were oppressing them. They missed the whole point, it seems to me. So 3,000 of them, they went, they said to Samson, don't you know the Philistines are rulers over us? Yeah, that's what had happened. And it happened for so long that the Israelites began to accept it as being normative. You know, it's the status quo. They're mad, not at the Philistines, they're mad at one of their own because they're afraid that because of what Samson has done, He's gotten the Philistines all lathered up, and now the Philistines are going to strike out against Judah. And Judah was, the Israelites were willing to be assimilated and compromised. Let's just make peace, Samson. Why are you rooting it for? Don't you know they are our, no. God was to be their ruler. They gave up on him a long time ago, and they accepted these pagans as rulers over them. What then is this that you have done to us? You upset the status quo. We just want to keep the peace over here. And he said to them, well, as they did to me, I've done to them. Have you heard this story about the frog in the kettle? Uh, you know, you, you put a frog in boiling water and the frog will jump out. It's a famous story. Instead, if you put a frog in cool or lukewarm water and heat it up gradually, by the time it reaches its boiling point, the frog will become so accustomed to it, he just gets boiled alive and you get frog legs for dinner. So that's kind of what the Israelites were doing little by little. They got assimilated, they got compromised, they got used to being oppressed by a group of idolaters, and they were no longer under the rulership of the God who loved them and entered into covenant with them. Now, folks, in the interest of scientific proof, uh, the story I just told you doesn't seem to bear out. <laughs> I read up on this. It doesn't work this way with frogs. So don't try it. It makes a nice story, and the point was legitimate. But from a scientific kind of biological point of view, it doesn't work. So don't try to do this later with your pet frogs at, at night. And so uh, the men of Israel are now mad, not at their enemy. Uh, they're not irritated by the oppression of the Philistines. They're irritated with Samson, who upset the apple cart. So they said, look, we've come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Samson said, okay, but swear to me you won't kill me. Interesting. So they said to him, no, we won't kill you. We're just going to bind you fast. We'll give you into their hands, but we won't kill you. Now, I, I don't get this. And so he allowed them to bind him with ropes, and they brought him up from the rock. They're going to bring him to the Philistines. You know, uh, uh, Samson had the strength to beat up on all of them. But at this point, he didn't. You see, I wonder if the time alone depressed in the rock. I wonder if it just softened him. I just wonder. And so I, he just complied, surprisingly, here. And so they bring him to the Philistines. And when the Philistines see Samson, their enemy, they party, they rejoice. But the text says the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson mightily. And so the ropes were easily broken by him, and his bonds dropped from his hands, and then, and we read this in verse 15, 
he found a fresh jawbone. See the word fresh? It could be translated new. It means it wasn't a jawbone, the jawbone of a, of a donkey. It, it wasn't one that was out there in this arid, dry land for becoming brittle for too long. It was kind of a job. He reached out. He, t- he killed a thousand men with it. It probably looked like that. That's the jawbone right there. You can see how you can weaponize this thing. He killed 1,000. Isn't this interesting? You had 3,000 men of Judah to oppose one of their own when 3,000 could have really ganged up on 1,000 Philistines and found release from them. But they got distracted from the real enemy and turned on one of their own here. Anyway, Samson does this. He kills a thousand of them. And we read further in verse 16. Then Samson said, look what he did. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. Well, so much for humility. You know what he did here? He wrote a poem. That is a poem. It doesn't look like one in English, but in the Hebrew, it actually rhymes. This guy, remember, who was the teller of riddles at his wedding celebration? This guy was a wordmeister. He liked word games. He wrote a poem to celebrate, not God. I have killed A thousand men. That's why I say he's an enigma. You get indications that he's repentant and that he's surrendering to the Almighty and that he's becoming up. And then he writes this prideful poem taking full credit for what happened. And so when he finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand and he named that place, he named it Ramat Lehi, but it's Lehi, We'll call it Lehi. Ramat Lehi, you know what it means? It means the height or hill of a jawbone. He named the place Jawbone Hill. That's what he named it. To commemorate his victory over these thousand Philistines. And in verse 18, then he became very thirsty. You can understand why. Remember, it's wheat harvest. It's hot. It's dry. And uh, I suppose killing a thousand Philistines can really work up a thirst. He got dehydrated. He's thirsty. And he called to the Lord. And folks, to my mind, that's the first time we have a record of him doing so. Isn't that something? This is his first prayer. It's a step in the right direction. It's not much, but at least it's a step in the right direction. He realizes he's come to the end of himself. This guy who could kill a thousand opposing Philistines with a donkey's jawbone, he can't satisfy his own basic fundamental life needs. I think God allowed this. You know, folks, at times when maybe we think he's abandoned us, oh, no, he hasn't. His design is just to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we would cease being self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-dependent, and look to him and say, oh, God, I can't do anything without you. I can't even satisfy my thirst. And I'm praying that the coronavirus would bring this realization to the lives of many worldwide. You can't deal with this. 
This thing could take us over in an instant. You know, wash your hands 9,000 times a day. <laughs> but when it's time for this thing to land on you because someone sneezed three miles away, you're getting it. It's okay. We have a health, unhealthy sense of self-sufficiency, self-reliance. God allows circumstances to do for us what they did for Solomon here. And so he calls out to the Lord. He says, you have given, you have given this grit. That's the first time we see him giving God credit. I wonder if that solitary time of depression coupled with the realization of his inability to meet his own fundamental needs, I wonder if that's what moved him to this recognition. Oh, God, it's not me, it's you. You've given this great deliverance by the hand of, now look at who he realizes he is, your servant. This is an independent agent who thinks he could get it done. If it feels good, I'll do it, and I've succeeded in doing it. Now he comes to the end of himself, finally realizes who he is and who God is. God, by implication, is the master. He's the servant. And he says, I'll die now of thirst. I'm going to fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. Maybe he's implying, oh, God, you won't get glory if that happens. Finally, he acknowledges God's presence and God's power instead of his own. Here's what God does in response. Verse 19, God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that water came out of it. And when he drank, Samson, he, he, his strength returned. He revived. Therefore, he named it En-Hakor, En-Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. He named that, he renamed that very place. First, he called it Jawbone Hill, but now he called it the spring of the one who calls to God. That's what it is. We're getting an inkling of, a, of humility setting in, of, of, of healthy dependence on, on God setting in. Oh, it's not Jawbone Hill. I didn't build this, the heights of the job. Oh, God, no, I'll commemorate this place not on the basis of my alleged victory. No, this is the spot where I, I called upon you. This is the spring of him who, who called upon God, maybe it, I don't know, maybe it looked something like this. I don't know. God did this. So interesting to me how it doesn't take much to arouse the compassion and grace of God. I keep asking myself, why didn't you just give up on Samson? But he doesn't. You see, the, the very next verse, closing verse in the text says, no, no, he judged Israel 20 years. <sighs> 20 years, God allowed this rather flawed and imperfect Savior to be the judge of Israel. And I wonder, maybe you are too, oh God, couldn't you do better? No. Who else does God have to work with but Samson-like people, like those of us in this room? We're the same enigma. That's because the Spirit of God in us is very willing to submit to him, but our flesh rebels. We're, we're all God has to work with. We're the, we have the same ups and downs, you know. It's like a spiritual roller coaster. Even Paul, the great Paul says, you know, daily. It's like a flesh versus spirit battle. That was Samson. He succumbed to the flesh more often than not. But even the little inclination towards God 
got God to respond. Well, not just to respond. Samson made the faith honor roll of Hebrews 11. Listen, what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. I think that's a specific reference to Samson. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Yeah, God can use us in spite of the mixed bag we are. You may give up on yourself, but your creator and redeemer won't. Oh, there are consequences for sin. We'll see that if we're able to get together next week. We'll see it. But one consequence is never that God says, that's it. You're no longer mine. I will no longer receive glory from you. No, he will. He will. When I read about Samson, it gives me real hope because I'm like him in some ways, as are you, as this flesh versus spirit battle. And Sometimes I give in to the flesh, and other times I let the Holy Spirit have control. So do you. This encourages me. God was with Samson to the same extent. He is willing to be with us. He'll restore. He'll forgive. Sometimes he brings us to that solitary kind of depressing place, that cleft in the rock, maybe is an opportunity to get rid of all the noise and distractions and turn to Jesus. Sometimes he will bring us to the end of ourself, even denying us some of the bare necessities of life, as in Samson's case, water, so that we have no choice but in our thirst to look to him who can satisfy our thirst. This encourages me in that regard. Samson is not unique. He's just like us. And God will respond to us just like Samson. Are you on the run from God? Let's learn from Samson. Don't need to run away to the cave. Run to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. We've sung this or declared it the last few weeks. It's fitting again. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. You know what Judges does? It obligates us to turn our eyes on Jesus because when we look to these so-called saviors, oh, man, our heart cries out. We need a better savior. The best of them is not so hot. Three chapters of this text are devoted to Samson. He's not the savior who could ultimately save us. Conjures up a hunger, an expectation for a real savior. This text, nah. This life, this world, this day, doesn't make you hungry for Jesus to come again. Oh, come thou long expected Jesus. There are temporary fixes for what ails us, but they're band-aids. We really look for the ultimate Savior, Jesus, to come again. What are we to do in the face of all that uh, faces us today? More than ever, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. That means intimacy with him. What happens? Well, the things of earth, even the coronavirus, they don't go away, but they go strangely dim. How? 
We say, in the light of his glory and grace. Let's stand together. We'll sing that. Let's sing it. You can raise your hands, but don't touch someone else's hand. <laughs> Let's sing this. Here are the, oh, thank you guys for the words. Help me here. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things. This is what happens. Strangely. How? In the line. And grace. God bless you folks. Graced by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look forward to seeing you on Sunday.